Good evening, everyone. I'm Allison Camerata. Welcome to CNN Tonight. Lots of developments today in the many legal challenges facing Donald Trump, including former Vice President Mike Pence saying he will not fight the order to tell a grand jury about his conversations with President Trump regarding January 6th. But there are many more cases, including one you may not be up to date on that begins in just two weeks. Plus, the Grammy-winning country musician who says country music can lead America out of its cycle of gun violence. Catch Secor of the Old Crow Medicine Show is here tonight to explain how. Also, Pulse of the People, I sit down with six voters from different generations about the challenges that they face in today's job market and economy and who they blame. Well, I think the tax cuts that happened under the Reagan administration set us up And so baby boomers had all this unprecedented prosperity that they thrived under, which is great for them. But then I feel that they've handed millennials the bill, so to speak. Okay, but let's begin with all the developments in Donald Trump's legal woes. Here with me tonight, we have political commentator Ashley Allison, Republican strategist Evan Siegfried, CNN senior political analyst John Avalon, and a man who knows a thing or two about presidents with legal problems. Watergate prosecutor Nick Ackerman. Great to have all of you here tonight. Okay, John, I'll start with you to welcome you back from Thank I you. Feel an Extended Vacation. Go on. Okay, go on. <laughs> uh, former Vice President Mike Pence will not appeal the order for him to testify in front of this federal grand jury regarding January 6th. How do we explain that turnabout? Look, I, I think the, the judicial order makes it a little simpler for him to proceed in that direction. But look, I, I think he also has had some legitimate questions uh, um, or concerns about structurally whether he could be compelled to talk about decisions in his capacity as uh, president of the Senate. Um, Mike Pence has done the right thing on January 6th. Let's not forget that. Let's give him the benefit of the doubt. Yes, it appears that he's running for president, so he's walking a line. But he needs to embrace the role he played on January 6th, that's how history will remember him, and, and, and just tell the truth and, and be consistent about that. And I think we have every reason to expect he'll do that. And they did give him that carve-out, Nick, that he was yes. looking for, basically. Yeah, but it's not much of a carve-out. I mean, it simply means that if Jim Jordan came up to him on the Senate floor at the time and said, let's get those fake electors in, you can't testify to that. But he can testify to every conversation he had with Donald Trump. And... The vice president was a he's a key witness in this entire mm-hmm. matter relating to January 6th, whether it's the fake electors, whether it's trying to get the various legislatures to change the vote, uh, whether it was the pressure that was being put on, on state officials. All of this was geared towards finally getting up to January 6th and getting Mike Pence to basically either push it back to the states delay the Electoral College vote, and somehow help Donald Trump hang on. He knows everything. Mm-hmm. And he's going to testify truthfully. I'm totally convinced of that. He is going to do the right thing, yeah. and he makes the case against Donald Trump. Evan, I assume that means Pence is cooked politically, if he helps. <laughs> Pence was already cooked politically because the GOP base wanted Mike Pence to go along with Donald Trump's plan to overturn the 2016 election or 2020 election. And Mike Pence, he's trying to portray himself as, yes, I'm still loyal to Donald Trump. I'm kind of reluctantly going toward uh, testifying. And I did fight it, but now pretty much have run out of all options, except one or two, uh, just to delay it. And I don't think the GOP base cares. He's done. He has to recognize that at this point, he's doing legacy. And I understand 
that he wants to be president. A lot of people do want to be president, but most people don't make it that far. And he really needs to look at what is best for me politically in the future. And he's not even doing that. He's taking, he hasn't even carved out a lane where he differentiates himself from Trump. Nobody in the Republican primary field has. Mm. Ashley, your thoughts? I've been calling this all day a fake fight. You know, like I'm standing up for... Uh, talking a lot of street trash a little bit, but not really ready to throw some blows. And I think that's what Mike Pence is doing. He's trying to appeal to the base, saying, I don't really want to say anything bad about Trump, but now that I have to say something Mm -hmm. bad, I guess I will because I'm a loyal American. That's like the perfect argument for him right now. And depending on what happened because of the indictment and the upcoming cases around Donald Trump, I'm not saying Mike Pence is going to be the next president, but if we clear Donald Trump out of the Republican field, I think the the field is open. I'm not saying he's going to, I'm never going to vote for Mike Pence and I'm not going to encourage anyone you else to You think he has a lane? I, I'm not sure. Well, what lane does anybody have at this point? I think Ron DeSantis is still trying to figure out his lane, Nikki Haley, Mike Pompeo. None of them really have established their lane because the person who is running the entire Republican Party is Donald Trump. So when, you know, people thought in 2008, Obama didn't have a lane and then look what happened. He was our president. So it's in in American politics, like history is really important, but we're playing in a whole new political landscape. And I just don't think anyone can say for sure they know where people will fall. Yeah, he should have a lane. If anyone has a claim to offer to representing Trumpism without Donald Trump, it's Mike Pence. Um, Plus being a genuine evangelical who stood up for the Constitution. The fact that he is so demonized by such a large segment of the Trump base, I would say, Um, I I think speaks badly to to the situation Republicans find themselves in now. Okay, can we talk about one of the most intriguing things to come out of this indictment yesterday? The story of the doorman. Oh, The the Trump Tower doorman, the former doorman who apparently was paid $30,000 to keep his mouth shut about, he says, um, a child that Donald Trump fathered with his former housekeeper. Mm. That's kind of, I don't know, juicy, um, but... Is that really the word we want to use? I don't know what uh, word to use. Oh, I, I think it's a Grover Cleveland moment. I mean, oh. what we... What we <laughs> Go on. You remember the election of 1884? Of course. When Grover Cleveland ran for president, and then he actually was like what Donald Trump is trying to do. He's trying to become president after another term when he lost. Ah, there is and, a parallel. But the, the key piece here is that Grover Cleveland had fathered out of wedlock a child. And the Republicans who ran against him had a little slogan. Um, ma, ma, where's my pa? He's gone to the White House. <laughs> ha, ha, ha. Yes. That's so, great. So Donald Trump is basically going all out Grover Cleveland here. There is actually a great new biography of Grover Cleveland, sadly I am reading, but enjoyably, <laughs> called Man of Iron that I recommend. If okay. Go deeper. Uh, of course you are, John. Here's what, the doorman, here's what the doorman told CNN today. He says, I was in complete shock. When I was informed by my attorney that I was cited in the statement of facts related to former President Trump's indictment, as I was not given any forewarning that I would be included, I was never asked to appear before the grand jury, nor was I I ever interviewed by the district attorney's office. CNN has not been able to verify the story, of course, of the former housekeeper. Um, But Ashley, doesn't this just show, once again, why women should be president? We can keep track. (laughs) We know how many children we've had, generally. We can keep track of our children. That's basically what I thought. That's the, that was that's a the hard argument. pivot, yeah. Allison. Yeah. Yep. But yeah, right. I agree. Yeah, you're <laughs> totally right. Women should run the world and we wouldn't be in half the problems that we're in. Um, 
regards to the doorman, <laughs> I think this is really surprising and yet maybe not. You know, yesterday there was a lot of uh, speculation that this isn't a super strong case. A lot of times witnesses always aren't informed. This is not the trial. This is just the indictment. And so sometimes witnesses are informed later when they will be coming out. I think that, you know, people have been saying what additional evidence does the DA have We don't know. There probably is more, I would assume, that to bring this case against a former president. And maybe this doorman, I think people were surprised that uh, the doorman and uh, uh, the other woman, Karen McDougal, were uh, was uh, included included in Mm -hmm. this indictment. And I I think that this is the beginning of the unraveling of this case that will be presented in this New York uh, courtroom starting in December. So we just have to see. But I agree. Women should be president. There you go. Let's on that note. Thank you very much, friends. I'm glad we all agree on that. Meaning, well, meanwhile, coming up, he's a Grammy winning country musician and a parent in Nashville. And he thinks it's high time for country music, for that world to step up on gun reform. Catch Secor is here live next. Country music star Kelsey Ballerini called for action on gun violence at the CMT Music Awards. Tonight's broadcast is dedicated to the ever-growing list of families, friends, survivors, witnesses, and responders whose lives continue to forever be changed by gun violence. I pray deeply that the closeness and the community that we feel through the next few hours of music can soon turn into action like real action that moves us forward together to create change for the safety of our kids and our loved ones. It's not just Kelsey Ballerini. Other country music stars are speaking out, too, about gun violence, including Ketch Secor, a Grammy award-winning musician and founding member of Old Crow Medicine Show, and he joins me now. Ketch, it's so great to have you here, particularly on this topic. We don't go a week on this program without trying to find some solution to gun violence, particularly mass shootings and school shootings. And so to have your voice is so important. So why, why now, Catch? I mean, let me just give you a statistic. This, this year, just in 2023, there have been, according to the Washington Post database, already 140 mass shootings, 17 school shootings. So why is this oh. time different? Well, it's because it happened in my town of Nashville, Tennessee. And in Nashville, we have the strength and resilience to show the nation how to respond to gun violence in our schools. We are a uh, blue dot in a red sea, and we have uh, the kind of uh, uh, conservative values that you hear about all across the country that can be one of these reasons why uh, you know, nothing changes, why the needle never seems to move. And yet the parents and students and activists and folks like me in the country music business are ready to stand up and say the last nail in the coffin is Nashville. You wrote this op-ed in The New York Times. And it says here, what the South needs now is an anti-assault weapons movement driven by voices from the center, by interdenominational faith leaders, by students. Nashville is called the Athens of the South 
because it is teeming with scholars at its many colleges and by country singers who are tired of bending to the whims of fear mongers and who are ready to speak from their platforms to an impressionable audience. So who are those fear mongers? Well, um, God, it's like uh, all of the forces that be from, um, you know, honestly, I see a lot of them in the media, but we as country musicians have a responsibility to speak to our audiences with truth. And, um, and the truth is, is that no child should ever be in this situation. You know, after the, um, after the applause is over and the final curtain call, a lot of us go home to our families and at 7.30 in the morning, we're getting kids ready to go out the door for school. School violence is, uh, is something that we need to eradicate from the core. And, and I don't know what the solutions are. I'm not an elected official. I, I'm a fiddle player, but I do know that enough is enough. Catch, I think that the country music world will be a formidable force for change. I mean, I think that you're really onto something, but are you afraid that when you write things like this op-ed for the New York Times, when you come on here, that, you know, part of your fan base will turn on you? Can you imagine if we harnessed this energy across the United States? I mean, when, when you go to a country show and you look out into the crowd, you see the kind of people who are reluctant to do something about gun violence in America. But what if you were to, to be, hey, brother, sister, I love you and I hear you and I know your pain and 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 I'm not asking you to throw away your whole arsenal. I'm not going to come prime out of your cold, dead hands. I'm just asking for one thing. Do you feel safe dropping your kids off at school? Because in Nashville, we don't. Not anymore. Uh, We all remember that god-awful shooting in Vegas um, at the Country Music Festival. 60, I think, people were mowed down. And there was a feeling after that um, you know, Jason Aldean was on stage that, that maybe the country music world could it would galvanize country music fans and the country music world would speak out. Why do you think that? Well, let me ask you this. Do you sense that there is more energy now? I just heard Garth Brooks speaking out today as well. Do you think that Nashville and because of what's happened in Nashville at the Covenant School, that there actually is more momentum today? I really believe that there's never been a better time now to move the needle and to eradicate school violence. Uh, and, and, you know, what happened in Las Vegas uh, a few years ago, which was such a shocking tragedy that, you know, I know players who were on that stage that night and that they'll never heal from the trauma that they experienced witnessing the, the killing of, of our audience in front of us. But the reason why it's different now it's because it's our kids. That's really, that's going to be the thing that does it. You know, we love our crowds. We, we, we love them. They, they, they put the food on our tables. But who do we love most of all? Our, our children. And, and the, the events of one week and a day ago in our hometown have proven that it's not outside the door anymore. It's right here. It's right here in our hometown. And it's time. Catch Secor, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate your message. Thanks. My panel is back with me now. Also joining, we have historian Timothy Naftali. Um, I think I wasn't, I wasn't um, blowing smoke. I think that uh, harnessing the country music world 
will be huge to help fight gun violence. It dovetails on something that you talk about a lot, which is the need to go beyond our our sort of warring camps and beyond the base and and winning people over. And I think, you know, his op-ed in the New York Times is excellent. And it's not just because he's saying, you know, a lot of country musicians are centrist, which, of course, I love to hear. It's that how do you build bridges? How do you take a non-maximalist position on this and appeal to people's hearts and heads and say, let's at least agree on school violence. Let's at least find a way to, to... to depolarize this issue when our kids are being killed. And that's why I thought it was such a powerful voice. Evan, uh, from the Republican point of view, does it stand a chance? Uh, Just from a realist point of view at this point, the way the country is divided, it doesn't in its current shape and form. I think when you have efforts from country musicians and others that are voices that aren't like you or me, that makes more of a difference. Mm -hmm. I'm a gun owner here in New York City. I went through the process, and I even felt that even though it was thorough, it wasn't thorough enough. I think there are reasonable compromises that even Republicans can get on board with if we stop portraying this as an either-or black-or-white situation. It's not, okay, if we give up one little bit, we're going to lose all our guns and our freedom's going to be taken away. It's about, well, maybe we don't need to have high-capacity magazines. I own a pistol, and my pistol, it's a 10-round magazine instead of a 20, and that's much better in my view. Uh, but at the same time, it's not enough. We do need to have common sense gun reform and gun safety mm-hmm. measures. Ashley. Well, you, you know, I've built my career around building coalitions and coalitions is working on finding a common ground. Sometimes it's Republican and Democrat. Sometimes it's with a younger generation and an older generation. But I tend to agree with you right now. We are in such a deadlock. Um, we just had, what, a little less than a year ago, a the first piece of gun reform passed, but it wasn't able to go far enough to ban assault rifles because we're stuck in this gridlock. But what I do think what Ketch was saying is that I don't think the country music industry will be able to do it alone, but they should know they aren't fighting this fight and starting from square one today. Mm -hmm. There have been parents and activists from urban areas and rural areas who've been impacted I was in high school when Columbine happened, which was one of the first school shootings. And now three decades later, Sandy Hook, Parkland, and that Uvalde, the, you know, so many kids have been killed at the hands of guns, but I want Ketch to know that he's not doing this alone. The country music industry doesn't have to do this alone. And if we build a robust coalition and let these lawmakers know that they are out of touch with what the majority mm-hmm. of Americans want. We all want to live in safe communities. We all want to be able to go to the movies, to the bar, to our churches, to drop kids off at school, teachers and students, and people who aren't even involved in the school system. We want to live in a safe country, so we have to do something. Tim, what are your thoughts on how intractable an issue this is, and is does history give us any uh, path here? Well, I think that when, when it became nationalized, it got harder. Um, I think one of the great... Uh, the, one of the errors of the George W. Bush period was letting the assault mm-hmm. weapons mm-hmm. ban uh, expire mm-hmm. because that was an unusual national compromise. Joe Biden doesn't talk much about that compromise anymore because it had another side to it, but it was a compromise, speaking of coalitions. I think that listening to um, Ketch um, is very heartening because I think the answer is not a national one. I think the only way to convey the change is to get local community influencers to talk it up, not elected officials. Look what's happening in Tennessee, for goodness sakes. Right yeah. now, they want to throw out, as I understand it, three members of the legislature 
because they were standing up for kids who were unhappy about the fact that schools weren't safe. So I think elected officials are not the people to do this. Sorry. I I just want to add something. Key to crime reform in the 90s Mm -hmm. were police unions. Mm -hmm. I don't understand, except from the side of identity and culture, why police unions, who are the front line of defense, who have to be standing in front of the AR-15s, why they are not holding hands with families and saying, enough is enough. Because they're the ones who could get killed too. Absolutely. And, and are. They're on the front lines. It's a great point. Yes, Evan? One thing that I also think needs to be done, because there are people in the center and center right who are persuadable on this issue. But when others, when people talk about it as just assault weapons, it's not just that. If you look at FBI statistics, over two-thirds of gun homicides are with handguns. And, of the, uh, and only about 10% or just under are with rifles and a fraction of that are with assault rifles that fall under the definition of an assault rifle. Yeah. And we have to expand it and talk about all guns, including handguns. I appreciate that. Some of the reason that I sometimes break it down this way is because if we can't tackle it all at once, let's stop school shootings. And so those are the, you know, it, generally the school shooters favor the, you know, AR-15s. So I hear you. It's very hard. To, to, it's almost, um, it just feels too, you know, Herculean at times to do, do the whole thing. But you're so right about the conversation. Thank you all very much for all of those ideas. All right, we have to talk about the violent weather ahead. Tornadoes killing five people today. Fifty million people are under severe storm threats tonight. We're going to speak to a storm chaser who has been in the middle of all of it. Next. Oh my God, it's violent! Violent tornado! That's video from storm chaser Aaron Jajak in Pleasantville, Iowa. That was just one of many tornadoes to hit the central U.S. in recent days. On Tuesday, at least nine tornadoes were reported. Two in Iowa, seven in Illinois. The town of Kelowna, Illinois, was hit and suffered severe destruction. You might be able to see some of this on your screen. Several buildings were damaged and multiple semi-trucks toppled over along I-88. A tornado also devastating Bollinger County, Missouri, early this morning, killing at least five people, injuring five more there. And tonight, that same storm system puts more than 50 million people from Texas to New York under a severe weather threat. Joining me now is that storm chaser, Aaron Jajak. Hey, Aaron, great to see you. So you're in in, uh, Indiana right now. Tell us what you're seeing. Yeah, I'm in uh, LaPorte, Indiana, which is in northwest Indiana. And we just had this monster storm system. I just came through. You saw the video. I was chasing in Iowa when it first initiated yesterday. Storms fired up, and I chased the storm yesterday, chased that tornado, and then immediately just kept traveling east here to Indiana to chase another day of severe weather here in the Midwest. And had a line of severe storms, even a tornado warning that we chased down in Bluffton, Indiana today. And the storm system has now moved off to the east, and it's actually has been a beautiful, cool, very cool evening here in northern Indiana. So, Aaron, one of the videos right now that you shared with us, we're looking at, you see the funnel cloud, you know, touching down onto the ground and you're driving towards it, which is what storm chasers do. But don't tornadoes, can't they sort of bounce haphazardly around? I mean, as you're driving towards it there, how did you know what direction it would be going? Oh, absolutely. So, you know, generally a tornado is going to travel in a pretty linear, a straight line in the direction it's traveling, but they do change directions 
you know, as this storm, the tornado starts to rope out, it will start to turn to the north back into the core of the storm. Uh, but also this particular tornado, if you watch closely in my video, I'm coming up fast on the tornado. And as I got close to it, actually, I slowed down a little bit so I could judge it's what it's doing. The vortex on the ground was actually at one moment started backtracking towards me, maybe about 10 yards. And when I was only about 20 yards uh, from the tornado at that point, and I quickly slingshotted off to the northeast away from me. So very fast moving tornado. So that also made it a little, you have to be much more careful trying to gauge what this tornado is going to do. I would imagine. Let me, I hope we'll show that video because that was the one that you were driving towards. You're saying, and we can see it. You're saying, it's not this shot. It's the one where we see that this one. So you're driving towards it and yeah. you say that you can see it, um, as you say, slingshot in a different direction. Yeah, well, in the video, it's going to be hard for you to see it in the video, but up and close in person when I was right there, I could see the vortex start to, you know, backtrack towards me a little bit before I then shot off to, to the off the way to the northeast. And one of the things I'm trying to do out there is I've got a 360 camera that I mount on top of my vehicle. And I'm trying to capture, obviously, I'm trying to provide warnings for the public out there. But I'm also trying to capture up close, you know, amazing video of tornadoes, something that most people won't ever experience in their life and try to get them in that seat as a storm chaser. So, Aaron, is this season worse? It feels like it to us where we sit. Is this a worse tornado season than usual? I mean, it is starting off, uh, you know, we are if we were to continue on the pace that we're at, we would probably see an above average tornado year. Uh, every, every year is different. It all depends on how the patterns in the atmosphere set up. But this one particularly is uh, it's starting off with a bang. I mean, it's been we're not even uh, uh, through, the, you know, we're not even to the peak season. And I, and I believe the death toll from tornadoes has already exceeded what we had last year. So it has uh, been a busy start to the to the year. That doesn't mean it'll continue through the season. But, it, you know, it could. It definitely could. Uh, it all depends. Every year is you know, the atmosphere is a very dynamic thing. Uh, but, you know. With a warming environment, that's one of the and the juice, you know, the juice that's needed for these supercells to form. It seems like we are starting to see these these big monster storms more often. Well, that's what I was going to ask you. I mean, so many people wonder about the effects of climate change, of course, and you're right there on the ground. So, do you see climate change making these more violent, more frequent? You know, I wouldn't necessarily more violent. But I would say more frequent, you know, I think in the last five, even not just supercells, but hurricanes, for example, I think in the last five years or so, I've chased uh, three or four major hurricanes. Uh, you know, in, in the past, there have been times where you could go many years without having a, a major hurricane. So it does feel like, you know, this is anecdotal evidence. I'm not out there taking measurements and going through data, but as a gut instinct, and this is one of the things as a storm chaser, be able to get close to a tornado like this requires a lot of knowledge of the atmosphere of, of, of storms and gut instinct. And my gut instinct says that we are seeing these stronger storms more often. Well, Aaron, J. Jack, be careful. Uh, we appreciate the video. We appreciate your story, but be careful when you're doing this. Yeah, I will. Thank you, Allison. Thanks so much for being here. Okay, now to this. Millennials are stressed about their economic situation and their future, and they tell us who they blame for that. The Pulse of the People is next. All of you guys. All right, today's economic challenges are hitting some generations harder than others. The cost of home ownership, student loans, and childcare are particularly tough for millennials. That group of Americans born between 1981 and 1996. So we wanted to talk to a cross-section of generations, Gen X, Millennials, and Gen Z, about their biggest fears for the future. We start with Millennials. 
Here's our Pulse of the People. I think millennials are stressed. We are triaging multiple financial systemic factors. And I do think it has to be viewed in the context of the policy that created that. And the fact that we were raised by boomers under their regime, and then we came up under them in the workplace. So we've been subject to their philosophy and their advice, um, maybe not to our benefit for a really long time. How do you think baby boomers stack the deck against you? Well, I think the tax cuts that happened under the Reagan administration set us up. And so baby boomers had all this unprecedented prosperity that they thrived under, which is great for them. But then I feel that they've handed millennials the bill, so to speak. That's reality. I mean, the, uh, the Bush tax cuts of 2001, we can go back uh, during, uh, you know, even during the Clinton years, Reagan years, there was decisions made that wanted to benefit a, you know, a certain generation and not invest into the future. And do you think the same of Gen Xers? I feel a little more generous towards my Gen Xers. Um, I've always felt a bit more like there are older siblings who they got it. They saw baby boomers coming and said, these people are jerks. They're only out for themselves. It would be really helpful for everyone to kind of take the time out and understand that we have had a, a hell of a start to our life, right? Two recessions, a pandemic, uh, college degrees that, you know, aren't necessarily as worth as much. And, you know, and fig trying to figure out a way to make a life out of all this. Things that really do worry me, though, are the staggering prices of houses. And there doesn't seem to be an end in sight for that. Owning a home feels so daunting for people of my generation and climate change. But I think about it every day. And that feels like one that we may not be able to get ahead of in time. The, the, the generation that was given one game plan, right? Go to college, do this, do that, you'll be fine. It didn't work out after two recessions and a pandemic. So now we're having to figure out different ways to build the generational wealth that especially in, in, in my specific situation for my family, you know, my family grew up in poverty. We're in a very interesting spot where my generation and the one before me did it or created this world with all these wonderful things and applications, but now how are we gonna fix the unintended consequences? I'm very sympathetic. I mean, I think that one of the one of the advantages I've always seen of being a Gen Xer is that we're sort of this in-between generation, that we kind of flew under the radar in a way that millennials were unable to and Gen Z was unable to. I attended law school, a very expensive private law school, which I took out loans for. And so I spent over 10 years uh I was a prosecutor for a while in New York City, and then I worked with domestic violence survivors also in New York City and had a very difficult but rewarding career, at least rewarding, um, you know, spiritually and, and emotionally. And it did not help me to accumulate wealth. That entire time, I was just paycheck to paycheck and hoping to eventually get loan forgiveness. I actually burnt out in my career and quit practicing law in 2022, part of what contributed to my burnout in a very significant way 
was the shame that I felt around my debt and how it made me unable to thrive financially. These are challenges, like I said, that people are not being sensitive to and tone deaf to. I hope to get uh, my loans paid off in, you know, I, I say 18 months from now. Uh, I got $25,000 left. So I'm just trying to get that paid fast. But for everybody else, I just hope they just forgive the 10000 and just help everybody out. I'm very happy as I sit here today to report that I've gotten loan forgiveness. I'm so grateful for that. When I got the letter, I, I truly had to read it three times to make sense of it. And then I fell to the floor and like wept because I never thought that would happen. Let's think about, for example, family planning, uh, thinking about how lots of families struggled during the pandemic because they had to decide whether to go to work or to take care of the kids. You know, we got married in 2019, the pandemic hit six months later. And we had to make a decision to stop pursuing, you know, trying to have kids because we didn't want to have that stress of not knowing what the health effects could be for ourselves, much less to a potential child. And then afterwards, right, we still don't have student loan relief. We still don't have a recovering economy. I'm currently uh, working part time as a tutor. Mm. And do you blame, Danny, do you blame Gen X or do you blame baby boomers for kind of the situation that you find yourself in? I don't want to represent my generation as the disgruntled generation, but I mean, there was policy decisions made in the 70s, 80s and 90s that have contributed to our position now. So what does my panel think about all of that? Baby boomer Tim Naftali has a lot of explaining to do. That's next. This is all on you, Tim. I know. Okay. <laughs> As you heard, millennials have not had it easy in this economy, and we're blaming Tim Naftali. Let's bring back the panel, Ashley, Evan, John, and Tim. So, John, I mean, Tim, thank you very much for taking this. I'm a, sta- I'm a stand-in. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, you're basically on the bubble of baby boomers. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a cusper. Okay, you're on the cusp. And so their argument, and I thought it was really an interesting perspective, they've had, as they were trying to launch their lives in terms of becoming, you know, independent people, they've had pandemic. They've had recession. They've had this, you know, interesting, well, they've had, I don't know, a crazy job market and all sorts of jobs going away and social media coming to the fore. So what are your thoughts? My thoughts are that uh, the definition of the American dream has changed Mm -hmm. in reality, but, but, but not in people's minds. And so expectations are the way they used to be in a world that has changed. And there are a lot of reasons why that has happened. Um, the uh, me generation, and I consider myself part of the it's, it's them generation, uh, the me generation um, uh, had its moment, absorbed a lot of resources. Um, Is that the baby boomers? Yeah. What's the, the me generation? What happened, I, I mean, I think one of the problems is that the the silent generation in the, in the before the World War II generation. Also known as the greatest the generation? Great, well, no, the greatest generation is before the silent generation. Okay, got it. There was an effort to invest in this country. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a sense of, of community. Now, not a perfect era, certainly, for many Americans, particularly people of color living in the South. But there was a sense of community. And there was a sense that, that resources could be, could coalesce for a community, and that the federal government could play a role. And what happened 
in reaction to the expectations of the great society in the 60s. People were disappointed. And there was Vietnam. And so what you had was a sense in this country that you can't trust government at all. And that's when this, the generation begins to remove resources from the community chest, mm-hmm. and we begin to underfund schools and roads, and we then leave the bill on individuals in a way that was never true before. School is too expensive. Yeah. Universities are too expensive. In, in particular, college debt is where you see that. And, mm-hmm. and, I and think, the millennials are really feeling that. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's sort of the insult to the injury on top of, you know, the, the pandemic and the Great Recession, which they were not even fully climbed out of when, when the, the pandemic hit. I mean, look, it, 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 it's not blaming the boomers, but it is a profound point that government, there was more of an ethos of investing in the common good. Mm-hmm. And and that had effect of lifting all boats. There also was an implicit uh, expectation every American generation would do better than the last as our economy was growing, and we we hit we hit a limit to that so far. Um, and also, you need to say that the percentage of Americans that were in the middle class start shrinking in the 1980s, and the percentage of the super wealthy start growing. Yeah. And it's that gap that uh, causes a lot of the people's anxiety. And Evan, you're a millennial. Yep. And you've written a book on this topic. Yes. Mm. First, as uh, the token millennial, I do want to, you know. There's two millennials. Uh, well, I think we should uh, give you a pardon, Tim, for your role <laughs> as a quasi-baby. As ruining boomer. the country. Thank for, you. Thanks. But Thank I you think you have to look at what's so better now. <laughs> look at what has happened to millennials. The oldest millennials are my age, roughly. Uh, I'm 40, and they're roughly 41, 42. And they've delayed having families. They've delayed getting married. They've delayed buying homes because they can't afford it. Millennials would be living at home with their parents longer than other prior generations. And also, the average millennial has $30,000 worth of debt, which is one of the highest we've ever seen in any generation. And we've experienced the Great Recession. That was like a punch in the gut when I was first coming out of college and really trying to get my career started. I couldn't move anywhere. And people really got stuck. And they blame, and it's shaped how we view finances. Believe it or not, UBS did a study about eight years ago that found millennials are the most fiscally conservative generation since the Great Depression. Not because they're conservative and conservative values, but because they understand how hard it is to go paycheck to paycheck. They're not going out and buying luxury goods as many other politicians of older generations, including Gen X, have mocked millennials, they just have to do that. And they have not been listened to by leaders, Mm -hmm. and their concerns have never been addressed. Ashley? Yeah, I think that everything that the panel has said is correct, but I think there are a couple other components to it. We... It felt like, you know, as a millennial, we were all playing on the playground and then the rules changed and everyone started playing video games and nobody told us to stop playing on the playground anymore. Mm. And so we were told to just keep living that American dream, go to college. And our parents were telling us that because that was what they were told was the best path to the middle class and to the upper middle class. But there was a whole other generation coming behind us already playing on video games. And so we just got left out and the rules changed on us. And, you know, a lot of times millennials say we or people say millennials were whiners, we're complainers. We're resilient. We're the generation that elected the first black president of the United States of America. We have seen the worst terrorist attack on our country. And yet we still continue to go to school, continue to say I'm not giving up on this country. We're just saying, like, can you meet us halfway? It's not that, you know, to your point, I'm unmarried. I don't have children. I don't own a home. I am the the case study for millennials. The question, though, I think, you know, as a political 
person and someone who works on campaigns and really thrives on talking to people on the ground is who is talking to me? Are Democrats developing policies for me? Are Republicans? And quite honestly, no. And so we have this growing population of people. And I talk to my friends and I do these focus groups and we're like, what is the public policy that will help us improve our lives for our parents? Because a lot of us are caregivers for our parents and for this next generation that we want to actually do better than us. And so I think that's where we're stuck as a country. Really helpful. Really helpful to get your perspectives. Thank you all very much for that. All right. So we're all talking about Donald Trump being arrested and arraigned this week for that New York hush money case. But what about the other Trump case that is actually just a few weeks away now. We'll talk about that coming up. The next hearing in Donald Trump's hush money criminal case is not until December 4th. That's eight months away. But there is a trial involving Donald Trump coming up much sooner, this month, in fact. On April 25th, Donald Trump goes on trial here in New York for the battery and defamation of E. Jean Carroll. She's a former columnist and magazine writer. She alleges that Donald Trump raped her in a New York department store dressing room in the mid-1990s. Here's what she told me about that incident just a few years ago. The minute he closed that door, I was banged up against the wall. He slammed you against the wall. Yeah, I hit my head really hard. Boom. I was stunned, right? And then he tried to kiss me, which was... It was so hard, but so my reaction was to laugh, to knock off the erotic whatever he had going on, because the man, when you laugh at him, he's like, no, you know, he just went at it. And when you say went at it, you know, I mean... He pulled down my tights. And uh, it was a fight. It was a... I want women to know that I did not stand there. I did not freeze. I was not paralyzed, which is a reaction that I could have had because it's so shocking. No, I fought. Carol sued Trump after he posted on social media last year that her accusation is a hoax and a lie and writing, quote, this woman is not my type. We have a lot to discuss with my new panel here. We have Misty Maris. She's a defense and trial attorney. We also have John Hart, former communications director for Senator Tom Coburn. Lauren Leader is a political analyst. And Jessica Washington is senior reporter for The Root. Great to have all of you here. Misty, as our attorney, what do you think of this case? I mean, let me just start by saying that because I think we've all been consumed with what the Manhattan DA is doing and with the Stormy Daniels thing, I think that we've given short shrift to this E. Jean Carroll case, which she's been talking about for years. And yeah. now, and we will talk about that, and, and that'll be next. But in terms of the case, tell us what we need to know. Yeah, this case has really been overlooked in light of everything else that's going on. But I've been following this case very closely. So what? here's what we have. We have a defamation case. And the defamation case is that Donald Trump went and said, You're, she's a liar, she's mentally ill, this is a hoax, all of these defamatory statements. Well, now there's also another claim. It is an Adult Survivors Act claim. That is for the underlying battery, which is the alleged rape. So in general, look, this case goes back to the 90s. She's the plaintiff. 
This is a civil case. So she has to prove this case by a preponderance of the evidence. That's very, very difficult when you go back so far in time. And this is a, a new statute in New York. So we're looking back to these older cases. So let me ask you, this, why some, is it battery, not rape? Uh, so, so that's the, in a civil charge, it's, in a civil case, it's going to be battery. In a criminal case, it would be rape. But look, there's some evidence that's going to come into the courtroom in an evidentiary decision that just came down. There's going to be two other women who claim to be survivors in similar circumstances with Donald Trump. The judge says that's going to come in. Both of those instances where he isolated them and did the exact same thing, uh, same type of thing. This is coming in as what's called propensity evidence. And another one, the old Access Hollywood tape, that's coming in to show that he, in his own words, has touched women without their consent in the past. So the scales have really changed from what is usually a big haul for the plaintiff to having some corroborating evidence on, on, on their behalf. So I'm really interested to see how this plays out. Yeah, I mean, Allison, you're right to point out that we should be paying more attention to this case. And I've been saying this for weeks, actually, and we talked about it a little bit when I was here last time. I mean, it is profoundly important when you look at sort of what is happening in Donald Trump's world this week and the number of cases that involve abuse of women fundamentally that are closing in around him, right? The Stormy Daniels case ultimately was about him trying to silence women and going to extraordinary lengths to cover up to the public his abominable behavior and treatment of women, especially right after the Access Hollywood case. And then in the same month, you've got Jean Carroll's incredibly important case. And, you know, you really have to feel for Jean Carroll because she has had everything working against her in trying to bring this case. She's been at this for decades. And it is thanks to this Survivors Act in New York that there isn't even an opening for her. And that also speaks to the number of people, women, children, et cetera, who've had sexual assault cases, experiences in their lives, and it has taken them years to be able to talk about it. And it was an incredibly important legal precedent in New York that allows these cases to go forward. So we should not be overlooking this. It's important. And one of the women that Misty was just talking about that's going to be allowed to be part of this trial is a woman named Jessica Leeds. Um, She's not accusing um, Donald Trump of rape, but she does say that um, he groped her on a plane. So here's what she told Anderson in 2016. He was grabbing my breasts and trying to turn me towards him and and kissing me. Then after a bit, that's when his hands started going. I was wearing a skirt and he, his hands started going towards my knee and up my skirt. His hands were everywhere. Did he actually kiss you? Yeah. Uh, on the, the face or on the lips? Oh, wherever he could find a landing spot. Um, Jessica, more than a, a dozen women over the years have accused Donald Trump of some kind of sexual misconduct. Yeah, it is truly horrifying. And I think what Eugene Carroll said is not outside of the pale of what we've heard from these other accusations. In a previous job that I had, part of what I was doing was keeping track of Trump's, um, of the allegations against Trump, all the credible ones. And you just kept hearing patterns that were so, so similar. So we can talk about the politics of this at a certain point, but we also just have to say, this is someone who was a former U.S. president who is now a presidential candidate and has this many accusations and the fact that it hasn't moved the needle in some ways is also really concerning. John, your thoughts? Yeah, look, I think it's perilous for Republicans to reflexively support Donald Trump and defend him. You know, members of Congress were elected to the House of Representatives, not the House of Defense Attorneys. And the response they should give to these allegations is to say, 
That's for Trump's defense attorneys to, to handle. He deserves due process. But Republicans should focus on their agenda. The same day he was indicted, the House passed H.R. 1, the Lower Energy Cost Act, which is the Republican vision for how to, how to do energy innovation, how to help the climate, how to help the economy grow. And that's what Republicans ought to be focused on. They're right? not. I mean, well, you hear them. Well, I mean, they, they, want, they, they are they circling want to the be. wagons. Around. They want to be. No, they don't. I suppose. But I mean, it's, it's hard to see that when they, as you point out, yes, of course, reporters ask them questions about this. So I, I, I understand that they wouldn't want necessarily that to be their first order of business. However, they're not distancing themselves from Donald Trump. Well, not enough are. But, but you know, look, the House, if you took a, a, a private poll of Republicans— a vast supermajority super would rather be talking about H.R. 1. They don't want to be talking about Donald Trump. And the more members make courageous decisions to not defend him, the easier it's going to be, and the more they're going to be rewarded politically for doing that. Republicans have a very serious woman problem, and they've had a serious woman problem for the last three election cycles, and that is by aligning themselves with Donald Trump, they've alienated suburban women voters who have voted aggressively against them for now three cycles and have handed a huge number of elections to Democrats. And the problem with, you know, the this sort of unwillingness to ever come out in public and condemn behavior that they know is repellent to women voters is that they continue to repel women voters. And I think this is another one of those cases. If they want to be talking about H.R. 1, they should really be talking about H.R. 1 and not be talking about, you know, not be trashing every prosecutor and every witness and every person involved in these cases. Do you agree? Let me have him respond. Do you agree? Well, no, it's not. It's not. It's not a totally partisan issue. Look, there are plenty of Democrats like Bill Clinton who have a very troubled history with women. But and right now, do you agree that Republicans still have a women problem? Absolutely, yeah. Republicans have a very serious challenge winning not just women voters, but suburban voters because they have pandered to, to Trump's vision of populism. And that is not conservative. It's not constitutional. So Republicans have a path forward if they go back to Reagan conservatism. Trump was successful when he, when he deferred to the Reagan coalition. And that coalition is still a lot more powerful than people give it credit for. Um, Missy, I want to go back to the E. Jean Carroll um, case. So is Donald Trump going to have to testify? Uh, he really is, because keep in mind, this is a civil case. That's a really important distinction. In a criminal case, a defendant can sit at the table and choose not to testify, and you cannot hold it against that individual. In a civil case, they are compelled to testify. If he were to not testify, an adverse inference, which is a negative inference can be taken by the jury and they can assume whatever he would have said would have been uh, to his detriment. So he's already testified under oath, though. There is a deposition out there. So I would expect his lawyers to be prepping him within the confines of whatever came out in the four corners of that deposition. But keep in mind, when you get on the stand, credibility is king. So now we're going to be talking about challenging his credibility, and it might go outside the scope of this case. I would expect the plaintiff's attorneys to push for catching him in all sorts of untruths, the veracity of anything he said, even outside of this case, and the defense to try and narrow it. And that's the fight we're going to see go on in the courtroom. I know this judge. He's very fair but he will take that step if it is if it is within the confines of the law. And again, credibility is a central issue in a case, especially one where it really is both sides of the story 
without a lot of corroborating evidence since it happened back in the 90s. Yeah. And politically, one thing I am interested in seeing from this case is what happens when Republicans have a choice. Because a lot of these things happened, came out after the primaries. So we're actually seeing mm-hmm. these allegations are going to be talked about in court. Trump is, like you said, going to have to testify and discuss these things ahead of a primary when Republicans will actually have a choice between candidates and not necessarily when they'll feel like it's either a Democrat or a Republican. And so I think this is a test. This is a true test of where the party is at if Trump were to win the nomination after having this trial. It's so interesting, as we were talking about, Lauren, because we we, are, we also talk so much about what's going on in Georgia, and that's seen as very high stakes, high legal jeopardy for Donald Trump. Of course, January 6th and what's happening with the special prosecutor, this case that has consumed so much energy this week in Manhattan. But th- this one is where he will have to, theoretically, yeah. be on the stand. I mean, this is also a very vulnerable moment. I think we've really underestimated, actually, how powerful and important this case may be. I mean, we as media and those covering it, I've been saying this for a long time. I mean, especially in this sort of like post-Weinstein world, right, there is a new level of accountability in the public, I think, for, you know, attacks on women we're going to see how far that accountability goes. You know, clearly Trump has never been held accountable for his misogyny. Um, We knew about the Access Hollywood tapes, but of course now it does all sort of fit together. And to your point about the fact pattern, right, you look at the the dynamics of the Stormy Daniels case that he was in fact trying to cover out, you know, the allegations are that he was hiding this information for the public specifically so they wouldn't know who he was and what he had done in order to win the election, right? And it's not that dissimilar in the Gene Carroll case, right? Just deny, deflect, attack. It's all the same pattern. So I, I think it's an incredibly important case. She deserves a ton of credit for her courage in persisting, which is not easy. I said the same thing about Stormy Daniels and about Karen McDougal. The women who are involved in these cases, they have, it is hell for them. And it should be played out in a court, but, you know, we need to take it seriously. So if E. Jean wins, what happens to Donald Trump? It's monetary damages. It's a civil case. I do think one interesting point quickly before we end, all of these cases do have impacts on each other. Yeah. Uh, in this particular case, the judge has already said the jury is going to be anonymous. Why? Because of the statements that Donald Trump has made against the judiciary, against other jurors relating to other cases. By the way, that's unheard of in a civil case. That's usually held for terrorism cases and cases involving organized crime. So that's the bucket that this case is in. That's incredibly remarkable, given that we have a civil case in in a federal court and it's being treated with that type of uh, with that type of care to ensure that the jury is protected. Really interesting. Thank you all for the perspectives and all that information. All right, next, there's a deadly mystery in San Francisco. The tech entrepreneur who founded the popular Cash App is dead after an apparent stabbing, and San Francisco residents are worried. What it says about crime in the city. That's next. A deadly mystery in San Francisco tonight. Cash App founder Bob Lee killed in an apparent stabbing attack in San Francisco. On early Tuesday morning, police found the 43-year-old with stab wounds. Lee later died at a local hospital. But no arrests have been made yet. Lee's death is again raising questions about crime in San Francisco. My panel is back. Also joining us is Philippe Rodriguez. He's a professor at John Jay College of Criminal Justice and a retired NYPD sergeant and detective. Professor, um, thank you for being here. Uh, Put on your detective hat. 
if you would. And I know the details are scant, but what do you, which, what are your hunches tell you about this crime? Well, at this time, we're going to have to actually, you know, go back and, and see all the clues at the crime scene. One of the things that we do look for now constantly is, you know, CCTV footage, ring footage. But at this point, what we're seeing is without having additional information, like the number of stab wounds, at this point, I could say it's just, you know, a random act of crime due to the time that the crime actually occurred at 2.35 in the morning. Uh, if now we get a higher level of, of stabbings or, or wounds, then we could say maybe it was something of a more personal level. So we're going to have to actually, you know, start getting some of the clues together to better determine. But what we're seeing is part of the larger crime wave that the whole U.S. is facing. So basically, meaning if you saw a lot of stab wounds, that would tell you that it wasn't a random attack. Correct. Usually, you know, when an individual has a deep-seated hatred for one person, then we see a large number of wounds. Okay. Um, but they, the police were called at 2.35 a.m. This is not a particularly uh, dangerous neighborhood, I don't think, where this happened. Correct. And are stabbing mm-hmm. attacks, are those often, uh, in terms of random crime of strangers, is stabbing often how it works? Uh, we're starting to see not as much as we have the proliferation of firearms. So it, it is very rare. Once again, like I said, we're also going to have to take a look at, uh, you know, his phone, because right now forensic information is, you know, these phones are constantly giving us more and more. But you have do have an individual that was worth over, you know, over $10 million in a relatively low crime area, what they say one of the best areas of San Francisco. So, you know, this is one of those murder mysteries that, you know, the officers are going to have to start canvassing the area and seeing what kind of, you know, footage they could pick up or maybe any noise that could have been heard in the middle of the night by some of the residents in the area. This is definitely a a little bit harder until we get the CCTV or any additional, you know, evidence. Let's look at the statistics of San Francisco. So in terms of from 2021, 22 and 23, homicide has gone up a little bit. If I can pull these numbers up, it was 10 in 2021, 10 in 2022. It's now uh, so far already up to Oh, this is for this time frame. For this exact time frame, it's up to 12. Correct. Then robbery. Yeah, robbery has ticked up from 594 two years ago to 660. And assault has gone up from 525 to 591. So how do you characterize what's going on, Detective, um, in San Francisco right now? Well, as you see it, it's on a national level. And I, like I've said, you know, I, I've started looking at a lot of different reasons. And what we're seeing is one of the contributing factors is the idea of bail reform. While it was a great idea in the beginning, these overcorrections that sometimes that are done, you know, for political purposes, sometimes undermine the actual good of the criminal justice system. As we see these overcorrections now ended up where we have these high level criminals, which we call like the top 6%. There are other predators out there, and they're basically just committing continuous crimes, which are therefore elevating our criminal you know, acts and our statistics when we look at our national level. Mm-hmm. Um, Professor, if you would stand by, I want to bring in my panel now to talk about all of this, because obviously uh, crime is a conversation that comes up politically all the time, and it's very real in some places, not as real uh, as some people fear in other places. Um, John, but San Francisco is mentioned often, politically and otherwise, because there's a feeling there that something has changed in recent years. Right. There is the absolute perception that that San Francisco is kind of the focus of a soft on crime trend. And we're entering a new phase in the crime debate. You know, my late father actually 
was the 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 head of the uh, organized crime squad in Kansas City during Operation Strawman, which was the basis of the movie Casino. So I grew up having a dinner table conversation about the war on drugs, war on crime. And what happened is we overreached, we overreacted and had too many laws that were tough on crime. And then we, we went the other direction. So I think there's a correction happening. I think he, he talked about the use of the word overcorrection. That's what's happening right now, where in some cities, particularly San Francisco, you know, the DA was recalled because of his soft on crime stance. And so I think we're, we're moving into a different direction now. Misty, thoughts? Yeah, I mean, the DA has been under scrutiny in San Francisco specifically, but I do think it's such a complicated issue. It's hard to say what the answer is. In this particular case, we don't really know anything about this particular individual to make an assumption about whether or not there's a criminal history or anything like that. Uh, and, and there is a need to scrutinize the laws on the books and make changes and determine that balance between fairness and public safety. And, and it's not an easy process, and there's not just an, one answer that, that we can all employ. Well, and relative to the last 20 years, crime rates are still very low. They've started to tick up, and I think the pandemic, we know that the pandemic has contributed to that. And in a city like San Francisco, there has been this kind of erosion of the city for a long time, partially because the extreme wealth has mostly left the city, gone to the suburbs, gone out to Silicon Valley, and it's left the city sort of under-resourced and under-invested in. And there's been issues for years. But I think I think you're right, and I worry very much about this like immediate backlash of oh, it's because of the bail reform. There's absolutely no definitive evidence that the bail reform laws have contributed to an increase in crime. That is a very knee-jerk reaction, and the fact is is that we have had a mass incarceration issue for years, locking people up for extraordinary. We incarcerate more people per capita than any nation on earth. Places like New Orleans, the state of Louisiana, incarcerates more people per capita than anywhere else on the planet. Like we have an incarceration problem. Crime rates have generally been low, but these, this stuff hits personally for people, and we want solutions. It's scary, but I think we got to be really careful about suddenly saying that like these hard-fought reforms to keep our prisons from being warehouses are the reason why are the reason why we're seeing these increases. Jessica. Yeah, I would completely agree. I get worried that cases like this, where it's this random act of violence, potentially, we don't know, but where people assume this is a random act of violence and then they get scared. And then how do we create these reactionary laws? We see that constantly in the criminal justice system where one thing happens to someone and it gets publicized and then all of a sudden we need all these laws. And like you said, you know, the folks who study this, like the Vera Institute, who have looked into bail reform and, you know, is there any connection to recidivism or an increase in violent crime? And they have found none. So I think when we're looking at this, we can't just say, well, we think that bail reform would do X, Y, and Z. We have to actually look at the data and we can't just let events that make us feel scared make us do things that harm people on a mass scale. Thank you very much. Really appreciate it. We need to talk about this next story. Imagine voting for your state representative and then your state rep changes parties once she's in office. That's happening to voters in North Carolina right now. We'll tell you about it after this. A political bombshell in North Carolina tonight, State Representative Trisha Cotham, who won by 20 points as a Democrat in her blue district last fall, announcing at a press conference today she's now a Republican. As long as I have been a Democrat, the Democrats have tried to be a big tent. 
But this now where we are, modern-day Democratic Party, has become unrecognizable to me and to so many others throughout this state and this country. I'm no longer a Democrat, but I remain a public servant. That is what I am called to do. The party that best represents me and my principles and what's best for North Carolina is the Republican Party. Her switch means that Republicans now have a veto-proof majority in the State House and the Senate. I'm back now with our panel. Also joining us, we have comedian and Princeton fellow, Maysoon Zayed. Great to have you. Um, Lauren, this is a fine how do you do for her voters who First just all, voted for her a few months ago. First of all, she was endorsed and paid for. Her campaign was supported and underwritten by organizations like Emily's List and the mm. Human Rights Campaign. She represents a district that is over 60 percent Democrat. And she's a longtime Democrat. She's a longtime Democrat. I mean, this feels just so, I mean, listen, people are entitled to change their views, and I, I, I would never, you know, I, I would never criticize that in another kind of situation, but she literally was just elected, and she was elected based on a set of understandings with her constituents and a career of service on the Democratic side, and in a state like North Carolina where the margins are so critical— this is devastating for that community. There is no recall option in this state. They can, the voters cannot get her back, uh, even though she completely mis misrepresented herself. And I think, to me, this is a lot like the George Santos case. I mean, mm -hmm. she completely pulled the wool over the eyes on her constituents. We're not talking about, like, a years-long evolution. It was, like, three months. She clearly had this planned. Um, Maysoon, here is what the governor of North Carolina, a Democrat, says is now on the line. Representative Cotham's votes on women's reproductive freedom, election law, LGBTQ rights, strong public schools will determine the direction of the state we love. It's hard to believe she would abandon these long-held principles and she should still vote the way she has always said she would vote when these issues arise, regardless of her party affiliation. She's not going to vote the way that she said she was going to vote because she's not even representing her constituents. So you were talking about changing your mind. You can change your mind. But honestly, I think if you are elected as a Democrat, you have to serve as a Democrat. I know it's a little fun thing where we are all like, oh, Manchin's going to switch parties. And then all the majority switches and all the rules switch. That's not representative. You're representing the people. You're not representing yourself. You were voted in as a Democrat. You could actually vote however you want as a Democrat. You could vote against every bill you said you would support. But giving them the supermajority, that's got to be fraud. It's got to be a plot. And either it's a long game for 10 years or three months ago, somebody found something. Because you don't just wake up one day and go, no, I don't want equality. I want emojis. women to die. Oh, she yeah. blamed emojis. That's my favorite yes. part. I That's really that. what Sutter Let's talk about is. that. Here she is. Here's what she says was, was the tipping point. That was a bridge too far. This is what the tipping point was for her and why she switched. One of the absolute worst moments, which was a deal breaker, a turning point for me, was when I was criticized for using the American flag and the praying hands emoji on all my social media platforms and even on the back of different vehicles that I have. I really could not believe that was the conversation that was happening at that time. And I was deeply offended. To say that that is wrong and not to be able to show off a flag because the others hijack it for something else, 
Why are we at this place in politics? Jessica. I mean, I would just say I'm incredibly skeptical of that as a reason to change parties. I would also imagine there are plenty of people who are Christian or who like an American flag who are Democrats in North Carolina. I can't believe that's like a party decision kind of thing. Um, I do think, I mean, her constituents must be incredibly concerned because Republicans now do have this veto-proof majority. And that means that all these issues that she ran on, publicly ran on, was endorsed by Emily's list. Those are all at threat. Um, And so I think they must be incredibly scared about what this means. John, your thoughts? Well, yeah, she's not the only Democrat who's concerned about the party being unrecognizable. You know, Joe Manchin's concerned. And the fact is the Democratic Party is not so much the liberal party, it's become an illiberal party that's increasingly intolerant of different views, you know, woke, cancel culture, and so on. I mean, Joe and, Biden is hardly Mr. Woke. Well, mm-hmm. yeah, no, yeah, but here's, that's, that's actually a good example because look at Donald Trump and Joe Biden. Since 2016, I've argued that Donald Trump represents the GOP's personality crisis. Donald Trump is not policy. There is no Trumpism apart from the man. Whereas, and Trump plagiarized Reagan and all of his policies, whereas Joe Biden is stealing ideas from Bernie Sanders. So Biden actually, Biden shows how the Democratic Party is veered to the left Mm -hmm. on energy and climate issues. The the public is with the Republican view on H.R. 1, the Lower Energy Cost Act. They want permitting reform. They want more nuclear energy. They want an all of the above energy strategy. But in terms of this, but let you can't get that done because Marjorie Taylor. But hold on, but hold on a second. But she's not representative. But in terms of this, do you think that this particular woman, uh, Trisha Cotham, do you think that she has misled her voters, and do you think they have a right to be angry today? I think I, I think voters always have a right to be angry. I think I think any politician has the right to change their mind, to change their affiliation, and those politicians will be held accountable in the next election. That's how our system of government works. But but to to to, to not acknowledge if you're a Democrat that your party has has problems. You're not dealing with reality. Well, she didn't say, I mean, I hear you, but she didn't say that. She said it was because people were criticizing her for the American flag and praying hands emoji. And I just don't know. I wish she had said and explained if she meant on social media or her colleagues in the state house. So I don't know what she means when she says people are criticizing her. Sorry, go go ahead. ahead. No, please. No, I also just like have to push back on all this and say, I'm looking at a woman who's crying about flags and emojis when we are women of color living in this country, getting death threats every single day, being told we don't belong here. I'm a Muslim. You want to talk about praying hands? I lived through a presidency that wanted to ban my family and ban me. So when we talk about, oh, it's not a big tent and it doesn't resemble, I don't know. I feel pretty comfortable and pretty safe around the Democratic Party. And I don't feel American safe or welcome around the GOP. So even though I feel her being like, oh, they didn't like my bumper sticker. That's why you're abandoning women's rights? That that comment describes why Donald Trump is is such a toxic person, because the American idea is the opposite of everything you just described, is that our founders believe in freedom of religion and that your your rights and your dignity does not depend on your, your... religious affiliation, your ethnicity, that's the American idea. That's what our country was founded on. The problem in North Carolina and in many states around the country is that it is becoming, it is essentially a tyranny of the minority. Mm -hmm. You have a state legislature that has super majorities of Republicans in places where actually there is much closer to a 50-50 or a 40-60 split among the voters. It's not just there. It's in Kansas. It's in Wisconsin. It's all over the country where voters, and by the way, even Republican voters are saying they do not want extreme abortion bans. 
It is the, the highest number measured in American history. Uh, 63% of Americans are saying abortion laws have gone too far. Republicans are not getting the memo. So in a place like North Carolina, this decision has deadly consequences for millions of women. And so it's not a joke. And to like mock her voters by talking about emojis when her voters sent there sent her there to protect their fundamental human rights, it's it's very disturbing. It's not about party. That's just pure rhetoric. Quickly, Jessica. Yeah, and I, all I was going to say is just, yeah, when you're balancing everyone's right to their own bodily autonomy and whether or not you're going to get made fun of for prayer hands, it is, it does feel like a silly conflation of those issues. Okay, thank you all very much. Something for everyone to weigh in on next. The latest trend is apparently being messy. Thank goodness. It's finally come around to our way. We'll explain after this. Yeah. Okay. Is your house spick and span or a dumpster fire? If it's the latter, you're in luck. It's the latest thing on TikTok, the rise of the messy home. What I needed was not someone to try and turn me from a messy person to a neat person, but someone to teach me how to clean as a messy person. Someone to give me the freedom to just live my day the way I wanted to live it without thinking about things. <laughs> she's she's basically giving people the free permission yeah. to have a messy home because she says that a messy home can be shaming. You know, you feel guilty yeah. when your house is messy. And so there's a way, she suggests, to um, clean it up sort of rationally. So let's talk about who's a neat freak here. Mason. Oh. Me. Oh, and why are you a neat freak and does that give you pleasure? It gives me a ton of pleasure. First of all, I'm Muslim. We like bathe five times a day. We're just clean. <laughs> like we're a clean people. But I love order. I love having my house clean. And I feel like, again, if the palsy chick can clean her house, so can you. <laughs> I can't mop. I'll fall on my face. But I can put the towel under my butt and scooch. Oh, my and gosh. Wow. Yeah, I believe in clean. And let me make like a disclaimer. If you're neurodivergent, if you have mental health problems that don't allow you to clean, I'm not shaming you. I'm talking about the people who can clean and don't, <laughs> who go on TikTok and are like, no, filth and lice is the new black. Like, no, oh. it's not. <laughs> and also, I have the best tip. What okay. is it? What is it? Because I'm I, all yours. I, I have chaos magic. This is what you do. Mm-hmm. You have one room or one closet in your house yeah. that you throw all the stuff that has no place. <laughs> so five minutes before people come, you pick up the cat, the golf club, the food, and you put it all that in is that great. one I think that's a great, that's a great oh, tip. No, that's the way to do it. No, Why? No, Why is that a good tip? I know that it's there, and oh, then I would bump you out. I would never do this. Really? This so for the filthy. Just knowing, knowing that there's mess. So you're a neat freak, too. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And that, it's not a freak. That's the appropriate way to live, yeah. just so we're clear. But also, I have to say, my one point about this, you know, this, it is like torture for women because we need the dudes to start cleaning. John, I live alone. John, so. this is where you I come have, in. I have zones of cleanliness. I like to create little sections that are beautiful where I can reflect and contemplate. I, we have a 62-acre farm, oh. so I have a lot to maintain. I like and, this. Zones and, of cleanliness. Isn't this and so what I try to do is just create a little area, and I, I have boxes. I don't, right. have, I don't have closets. I have boxes. And sometimes I discover a box that... You know, I probably, should, I probably should have gone through that. What's in the classified <laughs> material, obviously? Uh, just like, John, I like it's sort this. of when you have company coming over, you got to. Yeah. yeah, you just you toss know? it in yeah. a box. 
Exactly. And where does that box live? Then in a closet? Well, it's like stacked up in a corner, okay. you know, or in a closet. Yeah. All right. Yeah. I, I think that this is kind of a sane. Hearing about this. I, lo- I mean, I like the idea, but I live in a two-bedroom apartment in New York City. I don't have like a ton of just shoving things space. Under so the do, sink. Under the sink. Uh, well, yeah. there's a lot of stuff under the bed. <laughs> under the bed. Try that. Already sourced. I in New York. I, I had like the the big no, pan no, that no, I no. used for Thanksgiving for my turkey, like under the bed. No, nice. Uh, yeah. Like Carrie Bradshaw I, with the sweaters in the oven. I mean, I cleaned it. Uh, all right. Thank you all very much for those helpful hints. Meanwhile, Life in Plastic, it's fantastic. The new trailer for the Barbie movie just dropped and it shows everything's great, except for Ken. What are you doing here? I'm coming with you. Did you bring your rollerblades? I literally go nowhere without them. Barbie movie is coming out in July, and it stars Margot Robbie and Ryan Gosling as Ken. Hi, Barbie! Hi, Ken! Hi, Barbie! Hi, Barbie! Hi, Barbie! Hi, Barbie! Hi, Barbie! Hi, Barbie! Hi, Ken! Hi, Ken. With the radio fast and goes cruising just as fast as she can now. I might stay over tonight. Why? Because we're girlfriend boyfriend. To do what? I'm actually not sure. (laughs) (laughs) The movie is distributed by Warner Brothers Pictures, which is owned by CNN's parent company. I'm back with the panel. So that looks like a riot. But what I don't know the plot line, but I think that from what little I've read about it, from what little they've released, I should say, is that it might be a sort of modern send-up of Kent. Because all's well in Barbie world, but all's not well with Ken. Well, Greta Gerwig is like an incredible like feminist writer. And so you got to imagine that like all of the gender stuff that's wrapped up in Barbie that, of course, was my entire childhood. And by the way, my mother tried desperately. My feminist mother worked for years to keep me away from Barbie and she <laughs> failed. And well, it was how, all I wanted. Did you get like because, a bootleg Barbie? How did you get the Barbie? Seven, oh, because my aunt would give it to me. <laughs> she knew. She was like, she wants the Barbie. Just give her the Barbie. She's not going to play with the truck. So my, but that was feminism was like, Barbie's the worst. And, you know, she's bad for girls and she okay. is, but then amazing. And then you've got Greta Gerwig and I think it's going to be incredible. I mean, there's all, been all sorts of Barbie backlash, obviously, yeah. but this, it seems like, I don't know, just a different way to do it. Yeah, anyone can be Barbie. In the <laughs> mo- I mean, no, there's all these different Barbies that are supposed to be in the movie. So you've got Pulitzer Prize winner Barbie, you got Arthur <laughs> Barbie. Oh, that's President good. Barbie, so. And we have Barbie, a future Oscar winner, who is Jessica. Do we have Bar- uh, the send-up of Jessica as a Barbie? <laughs> oh, no. Wait, is this it? <laughs> Who is that? Oh, Oh, nice. That's awesome. Okay, what do we have next? Who do we have next? Okay, Lauren, here is you as Barbie. Nice. You're basically Barbie. I really want to Barbie for this one. That's awesome. Okay, Maysoon. Oh, John, Ken. Oh, you have a stash as Ken. I like this. Okay, let's see Maysoon. Waiting. Hold. Please hold. Please hold. Hold. Oh, oh my God! How you glamorous you are, yeah, but as Barbie. I have a love-hate relationship with Barbie. Like 
I would love to be a Barbie yeah. like Laverne Cox or like yeah. Misty Copeland, but she scarred me for life. Yeah, because I understand. I bought Becky, the wheelchair using Barbie oh, when I was a child, yes. and she didn't fit into the dream house. Oh. And then they discontinued her because nobody wants to hang out in the driveway. <gasps> Maysoon, this is an entire uh, segment on really? its own. But and Mattel can make it up by casting me in the sequel. Okay. Because I'll take care of it. There you go. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Wow. That, there you go, Mattel. Uh, do that. <laughs> All right. Thank you all very much for watching. Tomorrow on CNN This Morning, there's a dramatic Pentagon FBI mix-up. Inside the training exercise gone wrong, right here on CNN, starting at 6 a.m. Eastern. Thanks, everybody. Our coverage continues now. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.